We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to episode six of our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Um, and we are doing uh, one of the big ones today. We are doing Mare Tranquilitatis, uh, first aired April 19th, 1998, uh, directed by Frank Marshall and written by Al Reinert, Graham Yost, and Tom Hanks. And this is... You know, this is a real high point for the series, uh, covering the entire Apollo 11 mission and most notably the first landing on the moon. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, so before we get further, I think this is a great episode and I think they they do. This is almost a movie, this episode, like they cover so much. This yeah. is such a broad sweeping episode that has so many sort of high points and emotional moments. Um it's it's really one of the, I think the best episodes that they have. Maybe not the best one that's coming up, I think, but and this is really one of the best ones they put out. It's a solid one, and it's it's the kind of episode where you have high expectations going into it because everybody basically thinks of well, anybody who's not as dorky as we are, and probably you if you're <laughs> listening to this, thinks of Apollo to them is this is Apollo Eleven. Right, is is Neil Armstrong, that's what they think of. Right, Neil Armstrong, Apollo 11, too. You know, they probably even know the number Apollo 11 in that picture um, of Buzz Aldrin standing there with a shadow and the reflection in his father's right, Neil, hair. Yeah. Um, so we... Uh, oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Something else? No. So we begin with our FAW newscaster, Emmett Seaborn, um, interviewing... Um, Brian Cranston, Tony Goldwyn, and Carrie Elways uh, playing Buzz Aldrin, um, uh, Mike Collins, and uh, Neil Armstrong. Um, interesting casting, right? Pre-Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston yep. as a very tortured and conflicted Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, he's kind of, kind of a dick. Um. Aldrin was deeply unpopular with the other astronauts by all accounts, even Aldrin's own account. But, you know, most of the astronauts were probably dicks. Though. I mean, these guys are like, not, they're not just fire pilots. That may be the quote of the podcast. I mean, most of these astronauts are probably dicks. I mean, I mean, I don't know how, how different you think, like, you know, like Shepard and... Oh, I'm well. I'm sure that these were hyper aggressive, hard charging, hard driving, you know, military men. I mean, I don't think they liked Neil Armstrong very much either, but they just couldn't really fault the guy ever. Well, I think that they respected each other. I think that's a better way to put it. Yeah. You know, like and for example, like if you watch um, in First Man, you know, they they portray Aldrin as as sort of like. You know, like he says all sorts of inappropriate things, and he's kind of a jerk. I mean, I think here, like Aldrin is presented much more along the lines of the way that Aldrin and others have written about him as sort of like awkward and uncomfortable in his own skin. Um, but he's a little bit sort of more selfish than they're supposed to be. He's trying, like, in here, he's trying to angle to be the first guy out on the He's moon. lobbying. Right. Yeah, he's jockeying for position, which which earns him negative points with Deke Slayton. 
Um, right. Carrie That's Elways uh, doesn't look anything like Mike Collins. Um, right. He's the uh, he's the he's the prince. So no, sorry, he's uh, from the Princess Bride. What's his name? He he's plays the, the, pirate, the Dread Pirate uh, Roberts. Yes, yeah, Dread Pirate Roberts. He does get to fence while he's in the command module himself. And Tony Goldwyn, who doesn't look anything like Neil Armstrong, does a kind of a good job of capturing. Neil Armstrong, kind of his reticence and his yeah. sort of, you know, um, introvert personality. Yeah. And, you know, this is before, you know, Brian Cranston looks craggy, you know, like in, in right. Breaking Bad, he looks pretty craggy. He looks he looks uh, much more smooth in this episode. Um, and then we very quickly cut from this sort of like long fall interview to a scene of them walking out to the pad on July 16th and getting into the transfer van. And then we see them lift off. Like the episode goes quickly after the opening interview scene. Um, and then we cut back to the interview and we see Emmett Seaborg uh, interviewing uh, Jake Honeycutt, our, our simulation supervisor, also known as the SimSup, and talking about the the simulation of the landing leading up to the the, the literally the last day before the launch right so it, it then it's, it jumps around it sort of flashes back a little bit here and there from that point and and, and the the simulations become important later in the episode uh, and then we jump uh from jay honeycutt's discussion to uh showing uh neil and buzz uh engaging uh, the PDI, the power descent initiation at 50,000 feet over the lunar surface. And then we see them at 7,500 feet engage P64, which is literally the program that the, uh, the computer uses to land on the moon. And there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that there is one shot at the landing. There is only enough fuel for one shot and that's it. If they can either, they're either going to land, they're going to die, or they're going to abort. Those are the only three options. Right. Um, there's a lot of uh, we cut back to the interview again. Mike Collins gets asked if he's going to be lonely, um, which Mike Collins, I think in his book, he says he was asked that question about 10,000 times. Yeah, he's already been asked about 15 times in this series. <laughs> right. Um, and then, like, you know, as you said, we kind of keep coming and going from the interview um, and we cut to. The, the LLRV crash on uh, May 6, 1968. Right. So, um, you know, probably a lot of people watching the show don't know, you know, there's actually two of these. There's the LLTV, the Lunar Lander Test Vehicle, and then there's the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle. Uh, the T sometimes is used to just call training as well, but these were two two essentially wireframe aircraft that had a vertically oriented jet engine uh, that they could control the thrust on very precisely uh, and they could simulate a lunar landing and all of the um, and it had reaction people, control uh, thrusters yeah, on it. So it they had could, RCS right. and, and everybody who was going to, who could potentially fly a lunar module had some training time in it essentially. Yeah, and you see how fast the thing can go wrong because start if anything goes wrong, it starts flipping over and just I mean they're not that far up above the ground, and uh, next thing you know, you're basically jelly. 
Yeah. And and Armstrong very famously crashes uh, on May 6, 1968, because the engine fails and he bails out at extremely low altitude. He bails out. I think it right. I think somebody read somewhere that it was 98 feet he bailed out at. Yeah. Um, and there's actually if you go on YouTube, there's very clear footage because, you know, they filmed everything. So the yeah. entire the entire flight and the crash are, are filmed and you can see it. uh it looks just like they did it in this, and and uh, Armstrong shrugged it off. He he kind of shrugged it off and said he was okay, and went back to the office and did you know filed his report about the incident. But by all accounts, he was pretty banged up, but he did not want to show it. Sort of getting like we were talking about in the last episode about how you know they would do anything not to show that they had a physical problem or physical weakness. You know, he ejected at a hundred feet. Yeah. And hit the ground, you know, like the second the chute opened and, you know, he downplayed the fact that he was banged up. He makes a joke of it in the interview saying he bit his tongue. Right. That's uh, a mix. That scene is a mix of um, a full size uh, model that that looks it's if it's it looks like it's a pretty complete full size model. And then the explosion is actually done with a miniature model, but it looks pretty good. Yeah. Like, honestly, I think that this is better done. This scene also is in the, the, the Neil Armstrong biopic, First Man. And they, I think, honestly, they do it better here. Hmm. You get more of a sense of it, I thought. I can't remember how. I remember, I don't know, the stuff in that movie looked pretty good in general, mostly. Uh, yeah. Most but, but again, I don't know. I think they did less. Sorry, they did more with less here. Well, um, not the first time Neil Armstrong escaped from potential disaster. No, going all the way back to his uh, his time as a fighter pilot in Korea. We cut back to the interview. Uh, Armstrong is opaque about what he might say when he sets foot on the moon. Um, and talk of Armstrong stepping out first and saying something historic is really used not so much to talk about Neil, but to show how awkward Buzz is and how tough this is for him. Right. He makes the uh, uh, unsettling comment to his fellow astronauts that Neil and I land on the moon at the same time, which sort of is an attempt to diminish Neil's role. Right. Yeah, that, that is awkward. That's a good way of uh, describing that. Um, I, I wonder how close that was to reality. So I've read, um, you know, in Chaikin's book, he talks about this um, in the in First Man, they talk about it. And in um, in some of Aldrin's books, I mean, Aldrin's written a couple of books about himself. You know, he very much wanted to be the first person out. And that a lot of that, and they don't mention this in the episode, but a lot of that is spurred by his father. Like his father would openly say things like, you're a flop because you were second. You were just the second man on the moon. Um, no, and a lot of it was, just, you know, his father was pushing. Um, um, so, you know, that's sort of unspoken in this. You know, um, you know, his father was an army aviator, you know, uh, commandant of a test pilot school, you know, like his father was a, you know, an accomplished military man and a super hard charger like we were talking about earlier. Um, so I don't know. I mean, from what I've read, this is reasonably accurate, to be totally mm -hmm. honest, just at least in terms of tone. Right. You know, and like, for example, there's a great scene in, in this episode. One of the best scenes, I think, is where Aldrin 
confesses to his then wife, Joan, his first wife, that he would rather be on the second mission because he didn't want to be in so much glare. And if he was on the second mission, it didn't matter if he were the third or the fourth man on the moon. What's the difference at that point? Right. That that scene sort of softens things a little bit with him. Because right. Yeah. It makes him, as you would say, not it, such a dick. It humanizes him a little bit. And he's not just sort of out for glory. And it shows that, right, there is some kind of pathological reason driving him to strive to you know, wrestle Armstrong out the door. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if he was like, hey, Neil, look over there. And he ran out. <laughs> he dives out head first. <laughs> Wham. That would have been awesome. Cloud of dust. <laughs> Yoink. <laughs> Got you, biatch. Ha, uh, <laughs> ha. <laughs> um, but, you know, he acknowledges to his wife that, he would like to be first out, you know, why not me? He says, right. Um, a buzz, uh, inappropriately jumps the chain of command and calls George Lowe, uh, the NASA administrator we see and tells him that he wants a decision. Um, right. and he gets a decision. Yeah. And he D gets a decision sure to embarrass him. Yeah. He gets a decision that. right between the eyes. <laughs> right. In the crotch. So, yeah, I mean, Right, so Deke uh, calls Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in and mentions that he basically had gone out, had written to um, George Lowe above his head and uh, embarrasses him a little bit by telling Armstrong. Right, and, and you can see that and also at the same time, perhaps the relationship between the two men is irreparably damaged. Yeah. Right. Buzz made his move and he failed. You know, Neil emerges victorious, but the camaraderie between the two men is lost. Yeah. Right. They're 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 now just colleagues. They're no longer really friends. Hmm. You know, and it, and it really affects the whole tone of the mission. You know, they've they've they then have to do this thing together and it comes up later in the episode that they're not close, you know, and they don't really understand each other very well. Um, you know, Collins has said things along the lines of, you know, he was aware of all the tension between the two of them and he was aware of the fact that he could kind of sidestep it, but he was not close to either Neil or Buzz. Right. You know, and he did so much of his training on his own, too. It sounds like that, you know these guys weren't hanging out a lot compared to, you know, they show the Apollo nine guys hanging out a lot. I mean, fishing, hiking, hunting, some of them got a lot better exercises. Right. I mean, well, I didn't expect them to be going to ballet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think some of them got along better than others. And, you know, I'm sure that some of the astronauts were more friendly with each other and their families were more friendly and, etc and probably these three didn't exactly they weren't exactly buds hanging out yeah they didn't gel they didn't gel as a team um but you know but all of this stuff about buzz i think i think it adds to the episode because it, it makes it seem more human that these were you know people with foibles and ambition and ego who were you know you know they didn't just you know eat apple pie and you know Right. You know, listen to John Philip Sousa music all day long. Right. That was um, only eight hours a day. Right. And Gene Kranz apparently liked a lot of John Philip Sousa. Um, 
And then we cut to uh, one of the best scenes, I think, in the episode where we see them simulating P-64. And uh, Neil essentially and almost intentionally crashes the lunar module in the sim. Right. Yeah, that's a good scene. Right. The discussion he, and, after is a good scene. Rather. Right. And Buzz is upset and he feels that it was embarrassing and humiliating. And the, and, and Neil says he wanted to see if if Mission Control would call an abort and they didn't. Right. I mean, Neil, it turns out, had a great reason. He's like, we just, you know, did everything we were supposed to like 10 times in a row. And this time I wanted to see what they were going to do. And he says he has another good line. He says, we fail here. So we succeed up there. Right. And so um, it, it just kind of, it shows how, you know, Neil is really together all the time. Um, and there's a nice bit of the guy who plays Gene Kranz, who looks even less like Gene Kranz than Ed Harris does in <laughs> Apollo 13, where he says, uh, he says to the mission controllers, don't be afraid to call an abort, which heightens the tension for the actual landing, because you know that the, the controllers can can end things, too. It's not just Neil and Buzz. The call can come from somebody else and say, get out. Right. Um, there's a good scene where they're in their um, sort of their, their sort of isolation quarters before the launch where Buzz is openly critical of Neil for the way he handled the sim crash. And Collins just sort of says, I'm going to go to bed, guys. And, he, you know, he hightails it so that uh, Neil and Buzz can sort of argue it out a bit. Right. Um, but you know, they do, they do take an effort in this episode to humanize Neil just a little bit because he's played very coldly by Goldwyn. Uh, and then sort of after they have their argument, he makes a little bit of a, an overture to Buzz where he suggests that they move up the first EVA and they cut out a four hour planned sleep period. And he knows that that's appealing to Buzz. So he kind of throws him a little bit of a bone. Right. You know, and he smiles and he kind of relaxes the, to borrow a term from Al Shepard, the icy commander glossed for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I like the way that they had Mike Collins explain the Apollo 11 patch. There's a nice scene where he explains the symbolism of the patch and the fact that it doesn't contain the astronaut's name. Sort of alone among uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo flights, the, the patch does not have the astronaut's names on it. Right. And it is, it is a cool reason. They just, yeah, it is a cool reason. It's not for glory that, you know, this mission, because they're going to land on the moon, it's for mankind, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the Apollo 11 patch, right, is essentially replicated on the back of quarters. Yes. Right? Right? When we were kids, I don't know if they still make them. When we were kids, you know, there were, we saw all the time quarters with the eagle holding the, the branch and landing on the moon. Right. Right? So, so their patch made it onto the coinage, which is pretty damn impressive. Right. You did, did you collect coins? Didn't you collect coins when we were kids? Sort of. They had those like those little cardboard folders, and you could yeah, put yeah, the years yeah. in them. Yeah. We wow, you were pretty dorky. <laughs> were? I was memorizing Star Trek and Doctor Who episodes verbatim, and you were collecting coins. That's yeah. a toss up. That is a toss up. I don't know, man. <laughs> Doctor Who. <laughs> hey, you had a Timex Sinclair. True that. <laughs> I had a TI-99. That's also a dead heat. <laughs> right. The cool dorks had an Apple. Oh, yeah. Or at least a Commodore 64. But anyway, we digress. Right. Okay. And Actually, then that we... wasn't even dorky. Commodore 64. <laughs> and at least it had games. My, my poor, sad TI-99 had no games. It sucked. God. <laughs> you loved it. 
Oh my God. I subscribed to Niner Magazine, the official TI-99 magazine. And my mom, there was, you could get it two ways. You could get the magazine or you could get the magazine with a cassette tape of the, that week's programs. My mom was too cheap to buy the, the, the one with the cassette tape. So my brother and I would type out one character at a time, like, you know, 400 line programs into our TI-99. And then of course they, it took like days to debug them. That's right. Just to, you know, to, for a program to balance a checkbook when we were nine and had no money. <laughs> well, we just print out asterisks in the shape of a tree. <laughs> all right. All right. Back to Apollo 11. Um, so the Apollo 11 guidance computer was not even remotely as powerful as your, as your asterisk tree no. printing. Although the Apollo guidance computer was way cooler and it had a better looking display. Okay, so after uh, we see Mike Collins explain the patch, there's a very nice jump cut, uh, a la Kubrick, uh, to the lunar module in lunar orbit, um, and then we're sort of gearing up for lunar module separation. We see Charlie Duke as Capcom, and they show the lunar module uh, separate from the command module, and they do a gear down check. Uh, which looks it's the, there's some they spent some money in this episode there's some very good effects in this yeah and then we are go for pdi power descent p64 um oh sorry wait, p60 p64 is the final one but this is pdi is first but um I, i'm gonna say this i'm gonna just throw this out there people listening may disagree i think that this scene of apollo 11 landing is much better handled than the landing scene in first man this is to me at least it's more engaging and it's more exciting i don't know do you agree or disagree i can't remember all the details I mean, yeah it was a little dry in uh first man wasn't it it's very dry you know and the, the music is is very taut in first man and it's portrayed very starkly whereas yeah. here they give you much more of a sense of what's happening and in first man you just see it from inside the lunar module which i understand is what the director was going for for the whole movie the whole movie is practically filmed in first person but you know for here like it's better that they sort of intercut mike collins and the command module what's happening in mission control what's happening in the lunar module i don't know like i felt that this is a more holistic way to do it uh, that works for me much, much better. Like the the landing scene in First Man is up on YouTube now, and I watched it right after I watched this episode. And, you know, that looks way more expensive and it's lit in a, in a much fancier way. But somehow this works better. You know, again, like I said earlier in the episode, they did more with less here. Right. They did a good job with the drama. Yeah, they do a good job, you know, and the drama really starts when they they go past their three minute mark early and Armstrong calls out that they're landing long. And it's sort of the first sort of hint that there's tension or the, the, the landing might not be perfect. Right. Um, and then we are we are greeted with the uh, very, very famous 1201 and 1202 program alarms, hmm. um, you know, which which I think people who are interested in this know something about they know that there were computer alarms on the way down there's youtube videos about this and there's a lot been written on the internet about it but and depending on who you ask or who you read some people say that the 1201 and the 1202 program alarms were a much bigger deal or a much smaller deal and for example peter adler who helped write the software for the lunar module 
uh, he he has an article in the Apollo 11 Lunar Surface Journal about it where he, he actually kind of downplays it. And he basically says it actually wasn't really that big a deal. And, you know, very quickly they got the call up that they were go on that. They were basically, um, they had left their rendezvous radar on with the command module, which was overloading the computer, which technically wasn't a, a mistake because Aldrin had asked to be able to have the rendezvous radar on throughout the landing, and they had never given the lunar module that capability, and Aldrin thought that it had it. So he was doing what he thought was the right thing. And between the landing radar, the rendezvous radar, and everything else they were doing, the lunar module computer basically ran out of processing space to uh, to handle all that they were asking of it. Right. So, you know, every time that they, this is interesting, I bet you didn't know this, but, you know, they show them like, you know, the mission control was like, we're going on that alarm, we're going on that alarm. But every time that they would basically silence the alarm, they were they had to reboot the, the lunar module's computer. <laughs> No, I'm not kidding. It would reboot. It would reboot very, very quickly and pick up where it left off. Like it could, it, you know, it wouldn't like start up to zero, right. but it would, it would basically drop non-essential functions and pick up where it was with essential functions. But literally they had a, they was for all intents and purposes, they were doing what you and I would term a reboot every time they had a program alarm. Right. Which is had interesting. Like, had like 1K or something. It had a little more than that, but it wasn't much It was more. not much. I mean, that was probably the problem is they had all these arrays of data in there that, that was, they probably just didn't have enough memory. So it would throw a fault. <clears throat> it would throw a fault and then they would just clear the, you know, whatever that RAM was probably and then re reload it with what the last right. state was and remember too they had you know they had the rope memory etc yeah um but we see you know they're engaging their ags and their pings and they're they're basically sort of they're flying the crap out of the thing so um they show neil quote-unquote go to manual he actually says that in the show he says we're going to manual right there's a lot of tension 1201 1202 alarms neil goes to manual um, and that is also a little bit of an exaggeration, and and it is it's unfair to say that Neil was really manually flying the lunar module at that point because the the computer actually flew for all intents and purposes the entire landing, and and Neil does have control and he is moving it around, but the minute he stops moving the controller, the computer continues to take it down. So, for example, like if you read, um, I'm just pulling up the guy's name. I was reading an article by this uh, by Matt Hirsch, who's a sort of Apollo historian. Like he makes the point that almost every movie gets this wrong, or every TV show gets this wrong. Like for all intents and purposes, the you know the computer did ninety eight percent of the work of the landing. He was just trying to make them land further along, right? Know, and and words, he had and he had some control over the final selection of the spot, right? So he was basically slowing their descent so that they would fly laterally further out along the surface so they could find a flat spot. Right. And they, and they were, he ends up, you know, they have to go past West Crater and there's a boulder field and he basically manages to find a spot to put it down. But again, you know, they do it great in the show. Like there's a lot of quick cuts, you know, close-ups on their face. They look tense, right? You see the fuel gauge, you know, sinking like a rock. Yeah. Uh, the, the, like I said, the program alarms, like it looks good like it looks good and it's it's you know it's tense you know and there's a there's like a silent shot of mike collins and the command module listening 
Um, and then you see uh, the probe at the foot of the, the lunar module footpad, you know, touch the ground and you see the contact light come on. Right. Um, and then there's a sort of a quiet moment that Neil and Buzz share together where they clap each other on the back. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, for, for now, like the tension between them is gone soon to resurface. But for now, it's gone and, and, and the landing has happened and they've done it. Right. Uh, in, in 99, this is a ridiculous story. In 99, um, I got, I was lucky enough to live and, and work at the Johnson Space Center for a couple of months to do some research. And I went to this lecture and, uh, you know, they're very, very proud down there. And, uh, the, this lecturer was talking about Apollo 11 and he was talking about Houston. And he said, the first word from the moon was Houston. <laughs> And I raised my hand and I said, no, it wasn't. And this was an electric hall of like 200 people. And I said, that's not true. And he said, yes, it is. He said, Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And I said, no, the first word from the moon is contact. Right. And then there was this pause and the guy knew I had him and he was like, you dick. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and then we get to the interesting scene where Buzz takes communion. Right, which I have to confess, I did not know until I read Chaikin's book. Hmm. Did you know that? No. Um, and you can see that Neil is uncomfortable with this. Right. You know, like it's implied, I don't remember exactly what Buzz says in his book or what Chaikin says, but it's kind of implied from Neil's reaction that he didn't know this was coming. And then he sort of has to stand there awkwardly while, you know, Buzz says a prayer, eats a, a, a communion wafer and drinks a little wine. Hmm. which is interesting, you know? Um, and then we get to uh, Neil coming out, Neil coming out first with Buzz's guidance. Well, but, right? you know, but no, because um, Buzz had to wait for Neil to Davin after that. <laughs> no or, one's going to get that. <laughs> that's all right. There'll be a couple. <laughs> um, and there, you know, there's a little irony in that, you know, not only does Neil get to be first, but Buzz has to help him do it. Um, and then we see, uh, you know, Neil take his historic first step and his first words. It's, it's, I'm telling you, it's, it's great the way they do this much more so than first man. I think. Well, it's less solemn. And it's also like, it's, it's happy. It's like, it's exciting, you know, like, uh, somehow first man made landing on the moon depressing. <laughs> first man was, it was solemn was the word, right? By yeah. the way, you know, we, there's a podcast on our, our, our other podcast, this popcorn drink combo. And we did a few weeks ago, we did a podcast on first man, which is the movie from 2018 about, uh, Neil Armstrong. And if you're interested in that, well, you're over at popcorn drink combo. We also did a podcast on Apollo 13, the, the, the Ron Howard film, which you can check out as well. Yes, we did. Um, and, and then, um, and, uh, Logan's run. <laughs> God bless Logan's run. Um, so, and then we finish off the episode um, with uh, a sort of a mix of studio footage of Neil and Buzz coming down, uh, each descending the lander, walking around a little bit, and then a little bit of actual TV and uh, film footage um, of them on the moon. And then the episode ends kind of silently. 
You know, we just we just sort of fade out to uh, on a still shot of Neil and Buzz with the flag together taken from a motorized camera on the roof of the lunar module. Right. Um, I'm sorry. I think it's inside the lunar module filming through the window. Uh, but, you know, like, you know, at this point, like the series has really arrived. Right. They've gotten all the mechanics out of the way, all the exposition, all the explaining how it works. And they. You know, they really let us see the landing up close. Right. And it's it's halfway in. Yeah, I think I think, you know, Tony Goldwyn, uh, who plays Neil in this, does a good job. Like, I guess it's probably tough to play Neil Armstrong, but he manages to do it in a way that you could see how Neil is both difficult and a person at the same time. Yeah. You know, Mike Collins has the most meager role here, I guess. Well, Mike Collins' role in general is exactly what we said. It's being asked, yeah. what's it going to be like to be alone? <laughs> right. How what do you gonna, feel about not walking what, on the moon? What are you going to do while you're alone? But, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the command module pilots, right? Uh, Dick Gordon on Apollo 12, right? You can sort of go through the list. You know, the ones who didn't get to land, a lot of them hung in there hoping to get a mission later on, like Dick Gordon on Apollo 12 very famously was going to be command mission commander on Apollo 18, which was canceled, you know, um, missed it by that much. Yeah. But, uh, but Collins Collins after this said he was done. Like he left NASA by 1971, you know, Neil buzz and Mike, uh, went around the world on a publicity tour right. uh, during which, by the way, Aldrin really became an alcoholic by his own admission and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when they got back, you know, um, I think Collins was the first to leave and he, uh, he left to become, I'm thinking it was his first job. He became director of the air and space museum. Let me tell you, there must be nothing more fun than spending all these hours training with a bunch of guys that you don't <laughs> like that much or you're not very and close you're in competition to, with. Right. But then having to basically spend a year going everywhere around the planet, staying in hotels and doing the same thing over and over again with those guys. That's got to be way worse than being cooped up with them for a week <laughs> in a VW. Right. And in, in quarantine afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a it's a it's a discussion that's maybe too long for the podcast. But if you're interested, it's worth reading. Uh, I think it's called Return to Earth or Down to Earth. It's uh, it's Aldrin's book about what happened to him after the moon landing and sort of how he fell into depression and alcoholism. And I think, he, you know, he destroys his marriage. Like, it's it's really interesting. Like, he really, perhaps more than any of the other astronauts, he, he really falls from grace and has to dig himself out of a very, very deep hole. Hmm. Which he does manage to do. Like when you when you see Aldrin talk now, he he comes off very different than I think maybe he was as a much younger man. But uh, but it, it's heartbreaking to read some of his writings on this. I mean, talk about going from both the, the literal and the figurative height of heights to just the low of lows. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, from this point on, the the whole series shift gears, and and then pretty much uh, with a little bit of exceptions, the episodes to come each focus on lunar missions, and there's much less exposition. Right? They're kind of just they're showing. You know, now it's understood that you know how the command module works, and the Saturn V works, and the lunar module works. That's all put aside, and we get into the meat of the actual lunar missions. Right. What are they going to do on the moon now that they went? 
Right, right. And how do you and how do you keep going and make it worth the time and the money and the sweat and the blood and the toil that the country is putting in? Right, except for Apollo thirteen. Right. <laughs> All right. Should we wrap there? Yep. See you next right. episode. Yep. Next episode uh, is uh, Apollo 12's uh, episode, which we'll talk about. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Doug.